0: Well, all right. I said we're going to have a good day. Hey.
1: Welcome to Rise with Emily and Audra. I'm Dr. Emily McRae. And I am Dr. Audra Rankin. We are educators, healthcare providers, and mothers who view the world as an unlimited learning opportunity. Rise is a podcast that highlights
2: how we learn from the experiences and stories of others to create new perspectives
1: that improve our own work listen with us think with us learn with us and along the way be inspired to rise up above your day-to-day
0: all right this really shouldn't come as a surprise knock us down a thousand times in the mornings we will rise this really shouldn't come as a surprise knock us down a thousand times in the mornings we will rise okay shouldn't come as a surprise Every morning we will rise.
1: Welcome, Lynn Coleman, uh, to Rise with Emily and Audra. Thank you, Lynn, for joining us today. I want to start off by asking you a little bit about where you grew up. And I know that you, you went to Princeton, and I'm curious about, as an athlete, how you chose Princeton over other schools.
3: <laughs> okay. Thank you. Good to be with you, Emily and Audra. I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey. I was in a work, grew up in a working class, stable working class family in a neighborhood where you called all the neighbors aunts and uncles. And you had very little movement of houses uh, around there. People owned their houses and, and they stayed. I was blessed to have some athletic talent. And as a result, you know, it was got uh, a lot of uh, renown, I guess, for uh, playing football in high school. So I had scholarship offers uh, all around the country. I was recruited by every Big Ten school. I was recruited by every Ivy League school. I even went out the University of Washington. Uh, being African-American and uh, being 72 years old right now, I was not recruited very much in the South, except by North Carolina and an overture from uh, Georgia Tech because African-Americans were not playing at that time uh, in the uh, in the SEC. So uh, at any rate, I. Um, it was, I say, lucky to have a, a number of scholarship offers, and I. There weren't the rules that exist today in terms of visiting campuses didn't exist then, so I think I was gone twelve straight weekends. So I went to Syracuse, I went to Penn State, uh, I went out to the University of Washington, I went to Notre Dame, I went to Michigan, I went to Ohio State, I went to Brown, I went to Princeton, I went to Harvard. So I was, I was just gone Purdue. Uh, I was gone every uh, weekend, and that really was my first experience at seeing the uh, entire country. And it was very easy that I settled on Princeton because it came time to make a decision, and I was sitting at the dinner table with my father, and he said to me, boy, where you going? And I said, well, this school this, and that school that, and blah, 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 and he looked over his glasses, and he goes, that's all well and good but you're going to Princeton or Harvard, so you can make up your mind. So, <laughs> so he said, look, you can forget that football mess. One play, you're finished. Uh, you're an African-American kid. These schools are not open to African-Americans, and, and you're going to one of the two. So, you sleep on it, but those are your choices. So, my choice was made easy because I uh, ended up not getting into Harvard. I got into Princeton, so I was going to Princeton and uh, of course, later on, took actually got into Harvard Graduate School and took two degrees there. But the choice really came down to uh, my father telling me make a choice, and then the choice was made for me because <laughs> <and> Harvard didn't.
1: <laughs> well, it sounds like it, it worked out just fine for you. It was a good decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my dad was right. He was, and uh, as he said, because it, uh, when I got there, it, it opened a number of
2: doors. I had a great education, and it opened a number of doors and. Uh, I still uh, remain very active at, uh, at the university. That's great. That is, Lynn. You've talked about a little bit about your history as an athlete, and you mentioned football and I think and baseball. How do you think that uh, athletics shaped who you are today,
3: Emily? To be honest with you, I think athletics, basically, in a sense. Was the other than my parents the most important thing in in form my formative years and really what has kind of uh, shaped uh, my career? I, I was lucky to play for very good coaches in high school, and the one thing you learn uh, is that uh, you have to act as a team. And I, I tell people uh, that, for example, in, in baseball, the pitcher is not particularly important without the catcher. And generally, don't turn too many double plays without the uh, second baseman and shortstop being uh, in, in coordinated, and uh, center fielder calling signals uh, in the outfield, and even third base coach, because third base coach can win or lose a World Series for you by not being prepared or being prepared uh, in terms of how he's uh, sending sending runners home. So I think that athletics uh, taught that taught me that you. Uh, you can be a stellar individual, uh, but unless you've got, in most sports, unless you can play a team game, uh, then you are uh, not going to be not going to be as effective as you as you should be. And even in golf, uh, you know, which you can look at as a singular sport, you're doing it on your own. There still, you have to have mental preparation. So it is not just the athletics. Uh, i found that in life. You, whatever you do, you have got to have mental preparation and you have got to figure out how you're going to win and how you're going to succeed.
2: What a great lesson. That, yes,
1: yeah, I absolutely. That. I love that. Um, so Lynn, you spent some time uh, as president of the National League in the late 1990s. And I'm just curious to learn. I, I don't I think I know um, what you did during that time. <laughs> um, will you tell us a little bit about like what uh, that I'm not, I'm
3: not sure I know either. But
1: <laughs> um, tell yeah. us a little bit about your your work and how you, you know, maybe manage so many teams. Um And maybe if you have a memorable lesson learned or, you know, one thing that we could take away from that, that would be great. Well, yeah.
3: Surely you had well. Let me. I'll go down my constituency groups. Uh, as president of the league, uh, I had the owners, and uh, of course they had their franchise needs, and I was there doing a period of uh, when they were constructing ballparks, uh, and so new parks were in vogue, and so I used to have to go and into cities and lobby, in a sense, uh, with uh, generally with politicians as to uh, why the franchise should receive uh, a, a, a new ballpark and uh, it was a period of great expansion uh, and so you had a lot of the great parks uh, built whether or not it was out in San Francisco or Colorado or Houston uh, Atlanta for me uh, so uh, I, and then there were always issues different issues among owners that uh, you also had to settle on uh, whether or not they could move a club or not move a club. There or there might be a dispute between clubs on a trade and you'd have to make decisions. So I had the owners, then I had the players. Uh, and uh, one of the things that uh, I had was uh, player discipline. So I was a person who suspended uh, particular players uh, and everything. So you at the time uh, came in, there were uh, some charges, people would charge the mound and, and things like that. And that, things that weren't good for baseball. And, and so you had to uh, basically hand, hand, hand out suspensions. So I was in charge of, uh, of suspensions and also uh, player player relations there. And you had the umpires, and of course the with the umpires, you know, a lot of people don't see what everything that goes into umpiring. Uh, you know, you say the best umpiring is when you don't even know they're on the field, uh, and that's true if they're making calls right. So there's nothing controversial, but you also uh there's the life of an umpire players are home 50 percent of the time so if you're playing in close to you with the cincinnati reds you're on the road half the time but you're are uh, home 50 percent of the time but if you're an umpire who's home let's say is in oklahoma uh you're not home and they have family pressures uh, like uh, anybody else and they're gone for an extended periods of time so that may they may be going undergoing some personal difficulties, or uh, feel that uh, you know they're away from their children or their uh, their spouse, and uh, you know things can happen. I can remember uh, an umpire lives very uh, close to you and in Louisville. Uh, his wife was having twins, and it was a difficult uh, pregnancy for her. And they'd had miscarriages before, and uh, I, I just sent him home for the year, told him uh, you know we will pay for you, but you take the next couple of months off and and you go on, uh, you know, you go on home. So that there was a lot with umpires besides they're making calls on the field. There are a lot of things that are behind the scenes that you have to be uh, attuned to in terms of their personal lives so that they can function uh, very very well on the field. Then of course you you had your uh, you had the press. So I would, uh, would generally do a lot of press interviews or rarely a day went by where I wasn't speaking to someone about a particular issue or something and then I figured out the office was in New York and the Mets were out in flushing uh, Queens and uh, I figured out if I you know, my office was down the street from Grand Central so when visiting teams would come in I would go down and have a lunch with the visiting teams press and therefore I could uh, give them the, their access and tell them uh, what, uh, what was going on and, and so forth. So you had a generally a number of press calls each day, and then uh, also you had fans. And I call those ambassadorial duties because you would have to go make speeches or you know, you know talk to the fans about particular issues or whatnot. And I would say if I, if I learned anything is that you have to, uh, with that, you uh, one, you have to be even-handed, for instance, in issuing out discipline uh, you know, I couldn't give seven games for a crime one time and give three three games the next so that uh, there might be extenuating circumstances. So it, it would boil down to five or six or three or four, but you had to you had to be even handed. You had to be accessible. And, you know, as my father used to say to me a lot of times in life, be gentle, but firm. And so you could understand the other person's uh, position on something, but uh, you also had to be firm in uh, what uh, you wanted to uh, to do in terms of carrying carrying out your responsibilities uh, with it. So uh, I I enjoyed it. I had a I had a great uh, great time great time in the job. The fun part was going to the ball games. Uh, even <laughs> more fun was spring training because in spring training. There wasn't. Everybody was rather lighthearted, and uh, we'd we'd have a good time.
2: Wow! Oh my goodness, Lynn, (laughs) that is an incredible. Sounds like an incredible amount of work, and. (laughs) And actually, a really good segue into the next question I'm curious about, you, I mean, managing all those different groups from fans to players to to the press, you you know, you're having to manage lots of different stakeholders. You currently serve on the board of directors for a variety of industry leaders in business, athletics, and entertainment. And so I'm curious, can you tell us how you <laughs> translate what you learned in that in the National League then to how you balance the needs of and perspectives of different stakeholders on all these boards as well?
3: <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, well
2: <laughs> loaded question maybe.
3: <laughs> let me say that. I think the key word, and I think certainly one of the key words in life is contribution. And you have got to figure out what you have to contribute. Uh, you can't share it if you don't have it. And so you have to figure out what you have to share and then be able to share it with share it with others. So uh, whether or not it's a bank board uh, or an athletic organization, uh, you have to figure out where your skill set will help the team. Because uh, everybody, you know, for example, uh, you have uh, right now firms on corporate boards, your uh, boards have uh, what they qualify call uh, uh, financial experts and who qualifies as a financial expert. And so if you're with one of the big accounting firms, you probably uh, in all probability are going to qualify. I don't. So that's uh, not, it's not my area of skill, nor uh, is it a desire of mine for it to be. In area. So I, I have to think of other ways that uh, I, in a, can able to uh, contribute uh, to an organization. Uh, I, I also think in life that you have to know that you have to be pragmatic. Uh, and uh, in thinking about your skill set, you have to be pragmatic. And in thinking about your contributions, uh, once again, it's a thought process. Uh, what do I have to offer here? And how can I best uh, serve it up?
1: That's great. Do you feel... Um that your work, I mean, you, you have such an interesting background in a lot of different industries. And do you feel like your work on one board informs your work on another board? Like, are there shared perspectives that make you maybe a better board member or have more to contribute um, because you've been involved in so many yeah.
3: Yes, I think, you know, yes I do, Audrey, and I think that, you know, board experience, uh, one, a lot of times, uh, you know, the tough thing with a board is breaking it onto your first board uh, and everything, but once you get on uh, and you sort of uh, learn a a beat, uh, a lot of the things that you learn on one board, you're able to transfer transfer to another um, and everything, but I still think it's a question of, they're all different for a variety of reasons, and I still think that you have to Sort of figure out what your contribution on a particular particular board can be. Uh, one area, I, for instance, uh, I I have a good deal of experience. Had a good deal of experience working in uh, and traveling 17 African countries, uh, being a management consultant to churches all across the continent. And one of the things that I I learned over there, or uh, easily, is that. Uh, You know, people view things in different ways. Uh, I can remember I was in the Cameroons, and I was uh, teaching a seminar at a Catholic seminary, and I took a walk with a seminary worker, and down below I heard chanting uh, going on, and I said to the uh, young worker, uh, well, what's that? He said, it's the cry die. And I said, a cry die? Well, what is a cry die? And he said, well, when a member of the village is dying, people go to the village and they sing and they chant to them uh, until the last few days, until, you know, they pass away. And he looked at me and said, don't you do that uh, in America? And I said, oh, no, 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 no. We don't do it like that. And I explained to him the whole system of uh, wakes and funerals and that generally when someone was dying, that you left them with their immediate family and then just went to the wake or to the funeral. And he looked right at me and said, gee, that's dumb. And I said, dumb? He said, yeah. He said, if you don't go while the person's still alive, how does the person know that you appreciated their life? And when, when he said that to me, I, it just, in a sense, it ripped down uh, a lot of what I would call my Americanisms and American Uh, way of thinking and gave me a different perspective and when I thought about it I thought the system they used in the cameras was a lot better than the system we used in uh, in America so I think that you have to have be open-minded and receptive and know that people not only have different views but uh, views different views that you may actually learn something from
0: that's
2: wonderful Such a good story Lynn, in healthcare, both healthcare education and in healthcare delivery, there's a huge focus or buzzword around diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm-hmm. and efforts to improve access to healthcare, particularly in underserved areas. Have you seen examples of diversity and inclusion efforts being done well in other industries?
3: Well, let me put it like this I, I I personally think that we need, in America, that we need to uh, do more in terms of preventive health care. And also, I think that we need to put far more emphasis on mental health. And I think that these are two, two critical areas. I, I referred to my experiences in Africa before. I can remember uh, in a place like in Malawi, for example, with uh, Bill Hartzia, which is a fluke that you get from a river and it doesn't, Bill Hartzio in itself doesn't kill you, but uh, it attacks your uh, kidneys or attacks your liver and ultimately leads to, obviously, can, can be fatal. And, it, you know, but it's something that can be very easily dealt with if caught an er- at an early stage. And so that I can remember uh, programs where you would have lay people. Who would be able to identify the early stages of Bill Hartia and dispense medicine uh, to get the Bill Horta out of your system before it became an acute need, and you would have to go into a curative situation at a at a hospital and then back out on the street and repeat the cycle. So I learned from that, uh, I, and I, I think that, as I said, that as far as I can see in in America, to me, I think we we should be very strong on preventive education. And I do not think that enough is done, particularly
1: with underserved people with regard to uh, mental health in this country. Well, and I think, you know, your your story about um, your time spent in Africa is such a good takeaway from that because I think so often, you know, we don't think about how we can learn from different groups to improve how we deliver care you know we go in and we say this is how we think things sh- should be done because this is what the evidence shows. but we don't take into account you know other people's perspectives. so i think you you really shed some light onto how important that is to you just learn um and let that inform our work Speaking of learning and, and just development, I, I know for a fact that you are an avid um, golfer. And (laughs) and, um, I think that one of the things that is interesting about um, golf is that it, you know, it can be an opportunity for personal development, but also professional development because of the conversations and things that are going on on the golf course. So I'm interested in an example of a time where you played um, with a person that you found exceptionally interesting and maybe what you learned from that person that you wouldn't have learned in a business environment.
3: Let me tell you a story. You're right. I do like playing. I also used to play a lot of golf with the uh, great baseball player, Frank Robinson. And uh, Frank and I used to go all over the country playing. And uh, I remember as great a player as he was, and certainly one of the absolute all-time greats and tremendous power hitter. And Frank used to say, this little old white ball is sitting right here, right here. Now, a ball's coming 95 miles an hour, and it's spinning and dipping and sliding, and he goes, and I can hit it. He goes, this little old sitting right here, still. And it never goes where I want it to go. And, and so I, one thing that I learned is that you, you, golf is something that you never uh, you never master. But uh, other things that, that uh, I've learned, uh, what you probably don't know, is when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, I was a caddy in a golf course. And I learned, it very helpful for me in terms of the lessons in life, because I was in the caddy shack. Uh, with older caddies and then you'd uh, you'd go out on a golf course and you would be carrying bags for different businessmen and so forth. One lesson I learned the hard way, I can remember I earned $15 from what we call a loop, which was carrying two bags. And I was out there for four hours and I came back in and the the older caddies used to always play cards. And I sat down in a card game and in 20 minutes, my $15 was gone. So I, <laughs> I, after that, I never I never played cards again in in, in the county shack. But on in other <laughs> on in on, in other areas, when I was uh, out on the golf course, uh, the people knew about my athletic uh, background in high school. And I remember they would ask me what colleges I was considering. And I can remember saying to a fellow by the name of Dick Emery. Uh, Who was a guest at the time? uh, Well, you know, I would would like to also uh, consider going to Princeton. And his eyes lit up. And the next thing I knew, uh, he was a Princeton grad and played on the football team. And the next day, I got a call from the Princeton football coach. So it was a, I think that you, you you know, you learn different things. You also learn how on the golf course, how people uh, react under pressure. Uh, You can see the, good side of people and you can also see the bad side of people when uh, sometimes uh, someone that's uh, ill-tempered isn't able to perform as well. And I think if you don't perform as well on the golf course because you're ill-tempered, that may also happen to you in business or uh, or in life. So the personal qualities uh, that you have on the golf course, I remember one fellow (laughs) I caddied for, he never wanted a bad lie and i think so he, he wouldn't think anything of uh, going over and uh, doing a little foot kicking uh he get a preferred he get a preferred lie so i've always said this you you learn quite a bit about people according to their uh, decorum on the uh, on, on the golf course for me personally it was a very good experience you uh, you know caddied my 18 holes got paid on the on hole number 18 and in cash, and uh, off to the gas station I was to fill up my car.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's great.
2: <laughs> Lynn, no doubt in athletics or being a caddy in the caddy shack, you have had mentors throughout <laughs> throughout your life. Can you tell us a little bit about some mentors that, you, that have impacted you, um, as well as the value you see in serving as a mentor yourself?
3: Surely, Emily. I, I'm one that believes uh, Marion Wright Edelman, who's this the retired chairman of the Children's Defense Fund uh, and the foremost uh, advocacy group uh, for children in the country, wrote a book called Lanterns, and she talked about how there all along life people are lighting the way for you, and I always captured that term uh, because. I think that uh, she's absolutely right. they are always lanterns. Uh, generally, those lanterns start out being your uh, uh, your, your parents. Uh, but then uh, for me, when I got to high school, I had wonderful uh, coaches in high school who taught me how to win, taught me how to perform under pressure and everything. And I took that, you know, I took that away from uh, from then. I went to Princeton and uh, there uh, was uh, an African American dean there who took me under his wing, and uh, that was a time of uh, it was the time of Vietnam, civil rights movement, uh, and uh, for being in my class. At for instance, there were only 14 African Americans out uh, uh, like of close to 900 students. So the uh, environment there wasn't necessarily as welcoming as it could have been, and think the dean feels. Uh, took us all the African American students under his wing, and uh, basically, I'm not sure if I would would have graduated without his uh, without his guidance. So he guided me there, and then I was lucky enough to get into Harvard, and I was able to study under a Professor Martin Kilson, uh, who unfortunately uh, he was 88, but uh, passed away last year, and all of his students came back up for uh, his services. And we were we were known as Kilsenites and everything because Kilsen had us firmly under his wing, and we used to meet at eleven o'clock at night and talk and we'd go down to a little restaurant and eat, and then he uh, just didn't want to be the last one there because whoever it was, he had to drive Kilsen home. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, basically, Kilsen kept us uh, kept us provided a pathway for us uh, for success. So there he was a great uh, light for me. Uh, Then uh, later on in life, uh, when I came, I I spent four years in African church service for the Episcopal Church, I returned home and I supported a a fellow by the name of Tom Kane for governor uh, in New Jersey. And he won by the grand total of 1,700 votes and I was 32 years old, and the next thing I knew, I got a call saying uh Governor Kane would like you to be his uh Commissioner of Energy for the state of New Jersey. And I was stunned. And I said, Commissioner of Energy, I, I said, and it was the person who called me it was Nick Brady, who later was uh Secretary of the Treasury. And I said, uh, Nick, I said, I don't know anything about energy other than how to turn the lights on or off. <laughs> <laughs> and, he said, don't worry about it. You'll learn on a job. And, and he was right. I, I learned on a job. But uh, Tom Cain had enough faith in me to uh, put me in his cabinet when I was uh, 32. So basically, uh, I often think if 851 people had changed their votes around, uh, where I would be today? Because uh, he did win that election by 1700. And Next thing I do, at thirty-two years old, I was a cabinet officer, and that really, uh, in a sense, uh, opened up the road for me—a uh, road. So he was a great uh, lan- lantern for me. So I think that uh, what you find throughout life is that there are different lanterns along the path which uh, lead, lead you uh, into uh, into good things.
1: give me goosebumps. I <laughs> me too. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a great, great. I mean, story and lesson about just valuing people. You never know where you're going to meet people and where they're going to take you and where you can take others and- um, What you'll learn from What you learn. Yeah, amazing. No, no,
3: um, I, I'm a great believer too, that you have to, the main thing is you have to get yourself in position. If you get yourself in position, you uh, if, you're, if you're use a sports analogy, you never know when you're going to get called off the bench. And it's going to be your opportunity to become Lou Gehrig. And, uh, you know, he got called. He was second string, got called off the bench. and didn't get him out of the lineup for years. And I think that so that you, you've got to be prepared, be prepared, be ready, and be, as I say, mentally ready to contribute.
1: That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Lynn, for telling us just about your background and all the things that you've learned along the way. We. Like to wrap up our podcast with a couple of what we call rapid fire questions. So, this is just the first thing that comes to your mind, and it's a short answer. Um, so, you don't have to um, elaborate quite as much as we asked you to before. But, um, can you tell us, you know, I feel like you, I'm going to just call this podcast like Linisms because you've said so many things that could be like leadership quotes or <laughs> books that you don't even need to <laughs> answer this. But, what is your favorite leadership quote? or book that influences your life on a daily basis?
3: I think it's actually, my favorite book is actually by Doris Kearns Goodwin, who wrote uh, a number of uh, books, and it's called Team of Rivals, and it's how the Lincoln uh, had cabinet members with differing views, and how he managed them, uh, and everything, so it, uh, I, you know, before her book, I mean, I knew a number of the members of the cabinet, but... I hadn't realized as much as uh, how uh, different their views were, and how Lincoln was able to manage them. And I, it was a book that I can I can remember. I want, I would I didn't want to put it down. I would just get up and re- be up in the middle of that reading that book until I finished it. Oh. So I would say, Team of Rivals, by Doris Kearns Goodman.
2: Okay. Okay. Great. I like that, um, Lynn. The second question you've maybe answered a little bit for us already, but you you know you talked about uh, in healthcare. Um, improving mental health and having more growth. One of our rapid fire questions was, what's one thing on your wish list related to healthcare? Is there anything outside of improving mental health and learning from other cultures um, that you wanna contribute to that question or?
3: Obviously, mental health, I would also say preventive health uh, because I I look at things, uh, particularly we're talking about uh, things like diabetes uh, which are absolute killers in, uh, in our society. And I think if uh, we did much more in terms of uh, teaching people about it, that we could probably cut down on a number of bad things
1: absolutely and then our our final question um is that you know we the whole premise of this podcast is that we believe in lifelong learning and learning from other people um so if you could learn anything new we know that you said it wouldn't be finance related because you don't have an interest in um bringing that (laughs) into your work but what what would it be what what's one interesting or, or new thing you'd like to learn
3: well, fortunately for me, I I, I remain curious at 72. Uh, if I would, I uh, thought about, I'd like to learn a lot more about different religions. I'm also, I was a history major as an undergraduate, and uh, I'd like to go back and learn even more about history. And so that I could hopefully enhance my wallet, I'd like to become a better handicapper. You know.
1: <laughs> what a well-rounded <laughs> answer. Religion and, and gambling, all in the same <laughs> one. <laughs> well, Lynn, thank you so much for talking to us. And we learned uh, so much from you. And we know that you know people who listen to this in the future will too. So thank you for sharing and giving us so much to think about.
3: Well, great to be with the two of you.
1: Emily, Lynn Coleman has been a dear friend of mine for many years, and although I knew he was full of good stories and has had a successful professional career, I really wasn't expecting to learn so much from a 30-minute interview. I don't know about you, but I feel like everything he said had some sort of applicability to healthcare delivery, as well as my own personal leadership development.
2: I couldn't agree more. I absolutely loved Lynn's stories, and You know, Audra, that I am drawn to pretty much any story that involves athletics. I was so interested in Lynn's story about how he decided to attend Princeton University, and he chose that over a lot of other well-known athletic programs. Although it sounds like his dad kind of made the choice for him, I can't help but think that his dad's ability to clearly emphasize the power of education helped pave the way for Lynn's career.
1: And for Lynn, there was a place for a rigorous education and athletics. And Lynn talked about how sports was one of the things in his formative years that ended up shaping his career, including serving as president of the National League. I loved that his analogies of working on a team were all related to baseball. You know, a pitcher isn't important without the catcher. A double play can't happen without coordination. Emily, I don't think you knew this about me, but I was my high school's uh, baseball team statistician. And I, looking back on it, really have no idea why, because I'm not good at statistics, and I really don't know much about baseball. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. My point is that I could visualize a game and exactly what Lynn was saying with that example. You can be a star, but if you don't know how to play a team game, you're not going to be effective.
2: How true is that in healthcare? We often focus on the surgery or the incredible technology, the international clinical scholar. Yet if you don't have a team, whether it be the environmental service staff or the transport team or parking attendants,
1: the entire patient experience can break down so true. Have you ever been in a hospital room that hasn't had the trash taken out in several hours or several days? It can be a really bad experience. Absolutely. Uh, In addition to playing as a team, I really liked Lynn's discussion of how he managed a variety of teams and stakeholders in his role in the National League. He mentioned that he had owner and franchise needs, player needs, player discipline issues press management. And also, he talked about working with the umpires. And I was struck by how Lynn described the work of the umpires. I never have really thought about how they have to travel so much more, oftentimes, than the players uh, for their job and what impact that has on their personal life. Quite frankly, If I go to a baseball game, I just show up and eat a hot dog and cheer when they give a call that I like. So I learned a lot. (laughs) Um, Me too. (laughs) Lynn mentioned that you have to be in tune to personal lives to be an effective leader. Being accessible, fair, and also understanding the other person's position while being firm in what you want to do were all important traits during his time in the National League.
2: When I think about this in our discussion around healthcare, I can't help but think about how we can be more in tune with our colleagues' personal lives. We certainly talk a lot about patient care, but as a leader, we can also be thoughtful about how the schedules and stress of our job are taking a toll on our coworkers and their families. Being in tune to that and providing opportunities to listen and working together towards solutions can greatly improve the work environment, especially when we are working through a global pandemic. How often do we really ask each other how we're doing?
1: I feel like I don't ask enough. You know, Len also has had a successful career serving on the board of a variety of industry leaders, including entertainment and business and athletics. And What's so interesting is that although the industry may vary, what has not changed is Lynn's confidence in the skill set that he has to offer those organizations. Lynn really emphasized the word contribution. He said, you have to figure out what you have to contribute. In other words, how will what you share help the team? And he is right. That is so incredibly important. I spend so much time, and I know you do too, Emily, talking about knowing your strengths and weaknesses and finding people in your team that fill in those weaknesses. I mean, that's really the whole like center of an interprofessional team is talking about how we all bring different gifts to the table. But what really got me thinking uh, when Lynn was talking was how to articulate what you have to share, um, especially as it relates to maybe opportunities outside of healthcare. And I I think that I'm going to have to really kind of think about that for a while. You know, I know that I absolutely cannot contribute to Excel spreadsheet savviness or really anything to do with math. Just ask my accounting professor in business school. It was a small miracle I got out of that class. But, But it really got me thinking about what my gifts are and how I can share them. Well,
2: Audra, I mean, I agree. I learned about you just a few minutes ago uh, that you steer clear of um, being a statistician as well. I, in my personal <laughs> life, you can ask my children, steer clear of anything related to cooking. I can bake, but cooking is just not my strength. And so <laughs> <laughs> um, we, thank goodness, uh, have my husband, who is a very good chef. And I need to think about my gifts as well. I actually, it's funny because just this week at work, I had a discussion with a colleague of mine. She was talking about the Brene Brown book and talking about um, a list, one of her books, and talking about lists of strengths. And I was really kind of taken aback trying to just pick one or two things from this large list to really say um, that those two things are something that I can apply in all aspects of my life. So I'm, anyways, I'm still spending time thinking about what my two would be. But <laughs> as, as you know, I... Audra, in healthcare, we often get into a, a, a rut. Um, we do our work, which is valuable work, absolutely, but we may not think about our gifts as healthcare leaders and the gifts that we can share with a variety of industries. Um, outside of healthcare. That work ultimately improves our communities as well as ignites our own personal and professional growth. I just can't help but think of what impact we could make if we shared those gifts. Maybe you and I need to join a board. (laughs)
1: I think we do. I just shouldn't join any type of finance board, and you shouldn't join a board that has to do with culinary skills, and we'll be all set. (laughs) (laughs) Lynn also eloquently reminded us that people view things in different ways. By being open-minded and receptive, you give yourself the opportunity to learn something new that may also improve the work you're doing. I don't know about you, Emily, but I found his story about his work in Africa and the grieving process around a family member's impending death to be such a great story and a reminder of the importance of taking the time to ask questions and to learn.
2: Yes. I also thought his story about his work in Africa and the use of community health workers to help with disease prevention was something that was extremely interesting. We're slowly starting to talk about this concept in the United States, but I don't think we often look to impoverished countries for care models. Going outside of our own clinical community for inspiration,
1: I think can be really valuable and unexpected. I agree. I, that was a very unexpected um, story um, for me as well. Um, Emily, you know, I loved so many parts of this interview. I've said that a couple of times. But my favorite was Lynn discussing the mentors in his life, whether it be his parents, coaches, people he met on the golf course, professors, politicians. I'm sure there were probably others. But I was struck by a couple of things. For starters, the variety of mentors. No two were the same, and it sounded like each one had their own gifts to offer Lynn, and those gifts ultimately lit a path for Lynn's personal and professional success. The concept of mentors serving as lanterns, of lighting the way for others, it really did give me goosebumps. I don't know about you, but Lynn said that he has found throughout life that there are different lanterns along the path that can lead you into good things.
2: Audra, I felt the exact same way. I loved the lantern analogy. And I want to think about my own lanterns and also how I can be a lantern for others.
1: In closing, we hope you enjoyed learning with us. And we hope you find your own lanterns that lead you to good things.
2: We hope you were reminded to value your team. And we hope you remember that you never know when you're going to be called off the bench. Being in a position to be ready to contribute, to share your gifts, may lead to some of the most interesting experiences
1: in your career. This podcast isn't about healthcare, it's about
2: how we can learn from the experiences of others to make healthcare better.
1: Rise with Emily and Audra was produced with Resonate Recordings. The original song, Rise, was composed and performed by Alex Crumb.
0: This really shouldn't come as a surprise Knock us down a thousand times In the mornings we will rise This really shouldn't come as a surprise Knock us down a thousand times In the mornings we will rise Okay Shouldn't come as a surprise Cause every morning we will rise